This is Manna at Valley Baptist Church. Together, we take an in-depth, expository look at God's Word. So open your Bible and join us as we do life together. And now, here's Brad Hannick. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Numbers 22, Numbers 22, and we'll continue in the uh, journeys of um, Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land. This book, as you recall, covers about a 40-year period uh, between their exodus from Egypt and the entry into Canaan. And over and over again, you're going to see common themes show up in the book of Numbers, and it's Israel's failure and God's faithfulness. And that should give us comfort and encouragement that God is faithful despite our failures. We're going to take a look at a map of the Exodus route that they took, and you're going to see it's quite some journey. It was intended to take about two years. God had intended this journey from Egypt all the way to Canaan to take about two years, but Israel over and over again disbelieved God uh, and disobeyed and rebelled, and so it took 40 years. There's, you can see this major journey really took place on the Sinai Peninsula, which is that triangular-shaped uh, piece of real estate between the continent of Africa and the continent of Asia. And there are three major geographic locations where Israel spent considerable periods of time. One is Mount Sinai, which is right at the base of that triangle down at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. They spent a little over a year in Mount Sinai. They also spent some time at Kadesh Barnea, that was intended to be the launching point for the invasion of Canaan. That's where God had wanted them to launch the invasion of Canaan. And that's also the place where the 10 spies, 10 out of the 12, came back and said, the giants are too big, God is too small, we don't believe God. We want to go back to Egypt, we're not going to follow God into Canaan. We want to go back home into slavery where it's comfortable and where we know uh, the lay of the land at that point. And by the way, we'd rather die in the wilderness. And so God said, fine, you want to die in the wilderness? You're going to die in the wilderness. That whole generation, the older generation that refused to believe God in spite of all the miracles that he'd done for them, the Red Sea, the plagues, manna in the wilderness, he said, you don't believe me after all that? You want to die in the wilderness? Have it your way. So that's why they spent another 38 years after that wandering in the wilderness. That's where they've been until that older generation died. And much of their time was spent near Kadesh, Barnea. It's a major oasis. It's a matter of fact, it's a rather large oasis, still there today. And so they spent a lot of time at Mount Sinai. They spent a lot of time at Kadesh, Barnea. And now, last week, as we find, by the time they get to Numbers 20, they've entered their 40th year. So we are now almost at the end of this 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness. They're nearly to the Promised Land. They're moving toward Canaan. And you'll notice they're going to be looking at the nation of Edom. Edom is right uh, on the east side of the Dead Sea, south of the Dead Sea. And they had been refused passage to go through Edom. They wanted to pass through Edom, and Edom said, not going to happen. So they went all the way south. You'll notice a great big V, that red line goes south, uh, all the way down to Elath, currently Elot, which is um, uh, really at the southern tip of the Negev. And then they move northward on the east side. That's the other side of that red V. They move on the north, uh, northward on the east side of the Jordan River. 
and they run into some opposition. The people of this country, this region, are not going without a fight. Numbers 21, the chapter before today's, records that they had a fight with uh, King Arad of, of Horma, and uh, they moved to the east side of the Jordan River, and Sihon, king of the Amorites, attacked them. And then Og, king of Bashan, which is way north, south of Mount Hermon, he attacked them as well. God gave them victories over both of them, and they conquered them and possessed their land. So at this point in time, Israel owns all the real estate on the east side of the Jordan River from Mount Hermon all the way south. Now we're coming to the third major location we're going to spend a chunk of time, and it's called the Plains of Moab. The Plains of Moab are directly east of the Red Sea, and they can actually see Canaan from this site called the Plains of Moab, and Rob's going to show you a picture of that as well while I go ahead and open our narrative in chapter 22, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, so Moab was in great fear. By the way, Moab is the purple up there, Edom is the yellow, Ammon is orange, and the whole country of Canaan is tan, and the, the little red spot you see near the sea is Philistia. So Moab is in great fear because of the people of Israel, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the lands of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I am able, able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you cursed is cursed. So the country of Moab is, Balak is their king, and he's terrified because Israel has moved directly east of him. They're camped right on the border. And they can look over the land of Eden, the plains of Moab, and they can see the Dead Sea, and they can see the land of Canaan because it's an elevated plateau. He's terrified, and he wants some action taken so that he's going to be able to defeat them. Now, in a few months from now, from this date, Israel is going to be conquering Jericho. And Rahab from Jericho tells the spies, as you recall, the entire region of Canaan is terrified because of you, because of we've heard for 40 years everything that God has done. We've heard about Egypt, we've heard about the Red Sea, we've heard about manna, we've heard about the plagues, and we've been scared to death for 40 years. Now, Balak of Moab was their king, and he was terrified, but he didn't need to be. God had already commanded Moses, look, you're not going to ever attack Moab, and you're never going to attack Ammon because they're relatives. Remember, Lot was Abraham's nephew. Lot had an incestuous relationship with his older and younger daughter, and he had two children, Moab and Ammon. So the nations of Moab and Ammon were actually relatives of the nation of Israel, and therefore God said, you're not going to attack them. I don't know whether Balak had that figured out. It doesn't seem like he did. But Moab is terrified, and their fears seem to be two. One is military, but the other is economic. 
There are so many Israelites camped, about two and a half million, that Moab is freaked out that they're going to eat all the grass. There are so many flocks and herds. Remember, you didn't grow crops in this area. Moab got about one to two inches of rain a year, which makes Bakersfield look like you know, a jungle. We get four, maybe five, maybe six. So there's not a lot of pasture lands for all the flocks and herds of Israel and all the flocks and herds of Moab. So that would be economic ruin if, obviously, Israel's flocks and herds eats up all the grass. So Balak says, we can't wage conventional war against these people. There's too many of them. There's two and a half million of them. So we're going to have to conduct spiritual warfare. And his name, Balak, literally means to make waste. Now, I don't know what kind of parent names their kid to make waste, unless they're really good at filling diapers or something, and they make a lot of waste. I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. But in that era, people believed that human sorcerers or human soothsayers could bless or curse someone on earth, and that there were spiritual powers that would bring that curse or blessing actually to pass on those people. So Balak says, we can't conduct military warfare, but if I can find a first-rate soothsayer, diviner, sorcerer who can curse Israel and weaken them, then maybe we can militarily take them and beat them. So he sends to Balaam, who lives in Pethor, which Rob's going to show you a map of this whole region, and you're going to notice that Pethor is located on the Euphrates River in ancient Mesopotamia. It's modern-day Iraq. You'll notice at the top of this map the city of Carchemish. And in 605, this is where the Egyptians were beaten rather badly by a young general named Nebuchadnezzar, and it was the rise of the Babylonian Empire. But if you look at the distance between Jericho, which is right where Moab is, Moab is just east of Jericho, all the way to Carchemish at the top of the map, it's about 375 miles. So Balak is sending for this spiritual expert a long ways away, 375 miles away, right? And that would take around two weeks to get there. So it's a long journey, uh, and Balaam has got a reputation, a reputation that has spread at least 375 miles to the south, and Balak has heard of him. Balak, furthermore, is contacting Balaam because he's hoping that Balaam hasn't heard all the latest news about how badly Israel has beaten their enemies. Because if he had, maybe he wouldn't come. So you know the old line, an expert is someone with a briefcase that's more than 100 miles away? Well, this guy's 375 miles away, so he's really an expert. It's intriguing that the name Balaam means destroyer or devourer. And his daddy's name is Beor, Balaam the son of Beor. Beor means to burn up or to consume. Those are rather interesting names, right? They seem to indicate that both father and son are pretty effective at cursing and destroying things with a curse, all, of course, for a fee. Remember, these people are not altruistic. They get paid extremely high consultants' fees to come in and lay a curse on somebody. Now, the Bible calls Balaam a diviner or a soothsayer, and that's always the mark of a false prophet. In ancient Israel, if you were 
a divine or a soothsayer, it meant you were communicating with demons. So you were actually a medium who was communicating with demons, and that was a capital crime in ancient Israel. However, it's intriguing. This false prophet, Balaam, does in fact receive direct revelation from God, as we're going to find out in the next couple of weeks. God actually puts words in this false prophet's mouth. And we're going to find out that Balaam does have knowledge of God. He knows an enormous amount about God. He's just not willing to obey God. So he's very knowledgeable and very disobedient. He kind of reminds us of Simon Magus in the New Testament. He's the guy who, who sees the power of the Holy Spirit, and he goes to Peter and he says, you know, if I give you some cash, can you bestow the Holy Spirit in my life? Because I really want that kind of power. I mean, say something and poof, it happens. He wants that kind of power. And of course, Balaam is going to try to do the same thing himself. Balaam is going to try and use God to accomplish his selfish purposes and we're going to find out that, in fact, God is going to use Balaam's disobedience to accomplish his eternal purposes. There's an old proverb that says, God can strike a mighty blow with a crooked stick. Right? So King Balak says to Balaam something that is absolutely intriguing. He says, he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. That's very familiar because it's almost an exact quote from Genesis 12 where God promises Abraham in verse 3, right? I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. You can look at the history of Israel. You can look at almost the history of the world and look at how empires and people groups have fared based on their relationship with Israel. Any nation group, people group that gets sideways with Israel, attacks Israel, curses Israel, etc., winds up opposing the eternal purposes of God, and God destroys them. Now, to bless someone, to bless someone means to pronounce God's favor on them. When someone says, bless you, that doesn't mean you've always burped. It just means that you're, you're saying God's favor be on you, God's goodwill be on you, we hope you experience happiness, prosperity, advantage, good future, things of that nature. To curse someone means to pronounce evil on them. It means to pronounce harm on them. It means to pronounce injury on them. And it often invokes the aid, the aid of a deity to actually bring that harm on them and, and make it happen. So here's the problem. People can bless you with their words. They can curse you with their words. But human words have no power to actually make that happen, right? Someone cusses you out, you can say, well, I guess they don't like me, but they don't have any power to make those curses happen. However, whenever God speaks, he does have the power to make his words happen. Now, see, in that era, people believed that each nation had its, their own local God. I mean, there was a local god for Moab, there was a local god for Ammon, there was a local god for Midian, and they figured that Israel's god was just another kind of local god. You know, there was a god of the rain, there was a god of the crops, there was a god of the lightning, all those things. So these local gods, very limited. And these diviners or soothsayers or, or, or prophets, as they called them, or seers, were someone who says, 
I have the power to influence your local God. I can persuade or force your local God to comply with my wishes. So Balak said, Balaam, if you get that power, you come over here and lay a curse on Israel and stop their local God from protecting them so I can take them out militarily. So it was pretty common practice. Before you went to war with any other people group, you always hired some sort of a spiritual consultant to come in and curse your enemy and weaken them and prevent their God from helping them so you thought you could win a military victory. Reality is, Balaam was a medium. He consulted with demons on behalf of those who paid him. We don't know how much of his work actually involved demonic interaction, how much of it was parlor tricks, you know, in that area. If you were going to try and foretell the future, a lot of times you'd kill an animal and you'd lay out their liver and you would study their liver for clues about the future. I just figured it means the animal was drinking a lot, so they had cirrhosis or something, you know. But I mean, this, this is, these are some parlor tricks. These are some of the things that people tried to do back then, and they bought into that superstition. However, Balaam had to be pretty effective, or else Balak wouldn't have been go, come calling 375 miles away. Because it says he sends a very large delegation, very important people, you know, all of the muckety-mucks in Moab, are traveling 375 miles north to get Balaam to come down and curse Israel. It's interesting what Balaam does not get told by Balak. Balak doesn't tell him the name of the people who came out of Egypt. He just says there's a people group that came out of Egypt. doesn't say they're Israelites. Number two, he doesn't say how they got out of Egypt. doesn't say, by the way, there's a lot of miracles that were required to get these people out of slavery. doesn't tell him that. And he also doesn't tell him all the military victories that Israel's been having. I guess he figures that if he told Balaam the whole deal, you know, full disclosure contracts and stuff, he might not have come down. So he just tells him enough and says, look, I've got some issues here. I'm going to pay you a big fee. Come down and curse these people. Verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian, that's a tribal group right next door to Moab. These two are in alignment now. They have a peace treaty. Moab and Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. And he said to them, Spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Midian's Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me, Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse this people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Here's the principle. God's will is not hard to discover, but it is hard to obey if you're committed to choosing your own way. God's will is not hard to discover, but it is hard to obey if you are committed to choosing your own way. So Balak's delegation, they come to Balaam, and they're going to make him an offer he can't refuse. 
or so they think. However, Balaam wisely decides to ask God's opinion about the offer before he signs the contract. That would be a good move, right? Seek the opinion of the Lord before he signed a contract. What's fascinating is that Balaam uses the word Yahweh when he refused to God. Now that's Israel's covenant name for God. And you're saying, how does Balaam, 375 miles away, know the name of God, the covenant name, not a generic. He knows the specific name that God told Moses, this is my name and this is what you're going to call me at that point in time. Remember that Mesopotamia where Balaam is located is the birth is where Abraham actually came from. He came from Ur and then came back up to Haran for a year or two, actually a number of years, and then left for Israel. Highly likely that Balaam knew about Israel and knew about God's Yahweh's mighty power in freeing Israel from slavery. He certainly knew enough about Yahweh to recognize that it was a really good idea to ask God's opinion before he took off. It's interesting, it says the word, it says God came to Balaam. Now it seems to indicate that God, Balaam had asked God's opinion and God came to him at night, probably in a dream. There's no indication that Balaam saw God, but heard his voice. And God begins his conversation by asking a question. And we've said in this class many, many times, when God asks a question, he is not seeking information. He knows the answer before he asks it. Clearly, these men from Moab and Midian are enemies of Israel and enemies of Israel's God. And God basically says, Balaam, why are you offering hospitality to these people in your home? They're clearly my enemies. They're clearly Israel's enemies. You know my name. Why are you offering them hospitality in your home? Now, there are two things that are very crystal clear here. One, God clearly spoke to Balaam. Number two, what did God tell Balaam? No. Nine. Niet. Non. Forget about it, dude. Right? Is it pretty clear what God said to him? Say yes. He said, yeah. He said, no, you're not going. What's equally clear is that Balaam really wants to go. Because there's a big consultant fee if he goes down and curses Israel and he wants the cash. He's also going to make a big name for himself. If he gets this done, he's going to have fame and fortune. The only problem is God said, you're not to go with them. You're not to curse them because I bless them. Now, Balaam is a classic double-minded man. He wants to know what God has to say. Not so he can do it, but he wants to be able to evaluate it so he can negotiate with God to get what he really wants, which is money, 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 money. Right? He wants the cash. So he wants to use God. He doesn't want to serve God. Now, we have an entire health and wealth false gospel that tries to do the same thing today. You know, we want to use God to get what we want. However, Balaam tells Balak's delegation, he says, go home because God said no. Now, it's, it's interesting, between the lines, you can really hear Balaam say, you know, I'd really like to come over to your house to play, but my daddy said no, right? It, it's interesting, Balaam doesn't tell him why God said no. The truth is, not only cannot Balaam not curse Israel, it's impossible to curse Israel. No one can curse Israel because God says, I have blessed them 
and I don't change my mind, right? My blessing is irrevocable. If Balaam tells Balak, by the way, not only can I not curse them, nobody can curse them, it's impossible to curse them, then Balak is not going to give him his big payday. So Balaam, he wants to know what God has to say, but he really wants the cash. So he's going to try and find a way to get down there and collect that big spiritual consultant fee. Verse 15 to 18 tell us that Balak's desperate, and he won't take no for an answer. So he views Balaam's refusal as kind of a negotiating ploy. Well, God said no. Okay, well, then I'll, I'll, I'll up the ante, right? I'll, I'll, I'll give you more cash. So he sends a larger delegation, more distinguished people, more cash to try and persuade Balaam to come and curse Israel. Now, when they visit Balaam a second time, Balaam should have said, um, what did I tell you the first time? What did God say, right? God said no. He didn't really do that. He's hoping that God will let him go down there, and sometimes God will let you have your own way. Sometimes he will, in order to accomplish his plan. Verse 18 is an interesting verse. Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold... I could not do anything, either great or small, contrary to the command of the Lord, my God. Sounds really spiritual, right? Until you get to the next verse, verse 19. Now please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else God, the Lord, may speak to me. God came to Balaam that night and said, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak shall you do. Here's the principle. Never reconsider a decision you know is wrong, regardless of the rewards. Never reconsider a decision you know is wrong, regardless of the rewards. Satan is extremely good at coming after you've made an irrevocable commitment to follow Jesus or to obey in a specific area and say, well... You know, the circumstances have changed a little bit. Maybe you can negotiate with God over that obedience question. Never reconsider a decision you know is wrong, regardless of the, quote, rewards. Now, Balaam is a hireling. That much is pretty obvious. He's not a shepherd. He's a hireling. And he's just ba- he's let Balak know he can be bought. If the price is right. You know what he says? Give me a house full of gold and silver, and I'm your guy. But this is a negotiating ploy. Smells like greed to me, you know. He says, I'm not going to do anything contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Very pious, but God had already told him, don't go. Yet in the very next sentence, he says, why don't you stay tonight, and let's see if God can get God to change his mind. That's what he does. So Balaam's concept of God is that God is like these pagan false gods that you can persuade to change their mind if you kind of up the ante and give them a big enough sacrifice. Remember um, when Elijah and the prophets of Baal are in a rainmaking contest? There's been a drought in Israel, and Elijah calls for a contest. He says, look, you get your 450 prophets of Baal. I'll get on this side. You call your god Baal, who's a storm god, right? I'll call the Yahweh. Whoever brings fire from heaven on the sacrifice, that is God, right? 
So all these 450 prophets of Baal, they mutilate themselves. Literally, they cut themselves in some pretty bad places, trying to persuade Balaam to send rain. Well, that was their concept of God, that if humans made only enough sacrifices, then the God would be persuaded to come. Of course, Balaam thinks that that's what he can do to Yahweh. God comes to Balaam at night and says, I'm going to let you go to Moab if they come calling, but you will only speak my words, nothing else. God had given Balaam a choice. Would he obey God's prior command, or is he going to please his customers who are God's enemies because they had the cash? What does Balaam choose? He likes the color of money. You know what he's going to do. Verse 21. So Balaam arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the leaders of Moab. Verse 22, but God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the path and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord in the path, she pressed herself to the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. Here's the principle. God often allows what he does not approve. God hates sin, but he uses the sinful choices of people to accomplish his perfect plan. God often allows what he does not approve. God hates sin, but he uses the sinful choices of people to accomplish his perfect plan. You know, we, we obviously don't have to look very far. We look in the mirror and look at our own behavior and say, God allowed me to do that sinful, stupid thing. He didn't approve of it, but he gives me free will. But he's going to use all choices of people to accomplish his perfect plan. It's interesting. Balaam doesn't wait for Moab to come calling. It says he was up before daylight, baby. I mean, he had his donkey saddle. He had the alarm clock set for 4 a.m., you know, while it's dark. He's saddled up and riding toward fame and fortune. God didn't approve of Balaam's choice because he already told him no, but he permitted Balaam to go because God was going to use this disobedient false prophet to bless his people Israel in front of their enemies, the Moabites. What God is demonstrating here that nothing can thwart his will, not even human disobedience. You know, what's interesting, let me give you the picture. Balaam is traveling with quite an entourage. I mean, he's got all the VIP muckety-mucks, all the government dignitaries and their servants and soldiers and supplies. I mean, this, you travel 375 miles, you had to have a lot of soldiers for protection, right? So there's no motels along the way. You've got to carry everything with you. It must have been a pretty impressive sight. So he's traveling with God's enemies, and he's going to run right into God. His decision to disobey God had made God his adversary, and God sent the angel of the Lord to oppose him. Now, the angel of the Lord, that phrase appears in the 
Old Testament a number of times. And it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham, to Hagar, to Moses, to Gideon, right? To the parents of Samson. So the angel of the Lord is a very big deal in the Old Testament. It's either a very high-ranking angelic embassy sent straight from Yahweh, or probably more likely the angel of the Lord is the second member of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. In other words, before his incarnation at Bethlehem. So God himself in the form of Jesus shows up to oppose Balaam. And the angel of the Lord has what in his hand? A sword out of the sheath. Wow. He's ready to kill those who oppose him. What's intriguing is this prophet, this famous seer, one who sees what other people can't see, can't even see the angel of the Lord in his path. Now in that era, and I think in this era as well, donkeys are viewed as both stupid and stubborn. When you call somebody a donkey, or the vernacular of that word, that is not a compliment, right? (laughs) Balaam's dumb donkey is a better seer than he is. And she, of course, takes evasive action. She's not stupid. She wants to stay alive. So she sees the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword. And to avoid running into the angel, she leaves the path and goes into the field. Later on, she presses his foot against the wall and crushes his foot because there's no way around the angel. He's between two walls. And later on, there's absolutely nowhere to go. She lays down under him. Balaam is supposed to see the future. Can't even see that his donkey is behaving really unusually. It ought to tell him, who's supposed to see the future, that something unusual is going on. His only response is he beats her with his stick three times. Now the reality is Balaam is the ass who deserves the beating, not the donkey, right? I can only imagine what all these high-powered government officials from Moab and Midian are thinking, right? I mean, he's... I mean, I'm sure they're saying, look, we're paying this rock star prophet a huge signing bonus because he's supposed to have it all together, and he can't even control his donkey, and furthermore, he can't even control himself, and we're paying this big signing bonus to this guy to come and curse people. So God arranges a conversation between a donkey and an ass, verse 28. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and Balaam bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me, But the donkey saw me and turned aside for me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, I surely would have killed you right now and let her live. Here's the principle. Sin blinds us to spiritual reality. 
But God opens our eyes so that we can live in light of the truth. Sin blinds us to spiritual reality, but God opens our eyes so that we can live in light of the truth. What's most interesting is the fact that his donkey is asking him questions doesn't even shock Balaam into figuring out that something unusual is going on. He answers back. You think you must think he's Dr. Doodlittle or something, you know? So God is trying to open Balaam's eyes to spiritual reality, and he's using a dumb animal to speak to a dunce. And the donkey... <laughs> I knew where we were going with that. I didn't know we were going there. I didn't even have dunce written in here, I guess. <laughs> Dumb and dunce, okay. It is kind of brown, you know, that hat and all, yeah. So the donkey says, why have you struck me? And Balaam says, you've made a fool out of me. And the donkey says, well, you're doing a pretty good job of that yourself. Not really. And he says, I would have killed you if I only had a sword handy. You think he's a little out of control? A little out of control. Balaam tells her that he would kill her. What's fascinating, he says, I don't have a sword handy. However, this is a sorcerer. This is a guy who's supposed to be so powerful that his words can curse and destroy nations with his words. And he can't deal with his donkey because he doesn't have a sword handy. What is revealing is the guy is spiritually bankrupt and he doesn't have the kind of power he thinks he does. So if his words are supposed to be so powerful he can destroy nations with one of his words, then he ought to be able to deal with his donkey. So God tries to open Balaam's eyes, and he has the donkey asking two more questions. Number one, haven't you been riding me for years and years and years? Don't we have history together, right? Number two, have I ever behaved like this before? What she's really saying, the donkey, is if I've tried to get off this path three times in a row, maybe you're on the wrong path. You think? Since my behavior as a donkey is unusual, maybe something is going on that's equally unusual. And in fact, it is, because it says, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord. So now we see the fourth player in this drama. We've got Balak, Balaam, his donkey, and now the angel of the Lord. And when you see what the donkey saw, her behavior makes perfect sense. Avoid the angel with the sword and stay alive, right? Reminds us of the time in 2 Kings 6, Elisha, the prophet of God, has been telling the king of Israel exactly where the armies of Syria are going to do their raids next. He said, they're going to show up here, 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 and here. Be ready. So Israel is always prepared. They follow Elisha's advice. They have an army waiting. Every time Syria shows up at that particular location, the king of Syria finds out that Elisha is the intel for the king of Israel. He sends a big army into Israel to capture him. And they surround the city of Dothan where Elijah's saying, Elisha's servant wakes up early, goes out, sees an entire human army with horses and chariots surrounding the city of Dothan, and he's terrified. And he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Which means we're in deep doo-doo. Elisha says in 2 Kings 6, 16, Do not fear, for those with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, 
O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opens the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. You know, we sing this song in church, God is always working. He's always working. That's true. God is always working, and God is always present, even when we don't see it. We've talked in this class before, 99.9% of everything that's going on in the world is invisible. We just see the visible. We don't see the spiritual realities. We're like Balaam. We're operating on the basis of what we can see, not on the basis of what is. We see with the eyes of faith when we take God's word and obey it, regardless of whether we physically see it or not. Then we behave in a, in a prudent manner. The donkey is behaving very rationally here. When you see an angel with a drawn sword, you do what you need to do to stay alive. You avoid that. Balaam, of course, is blinded by sin and doesn't see that. The truth of that is, most of the time, people don't see spiritual reality because they're chasing after something other than God. The stuff of this life, right? So now Balaam does the only smart thing he's done so far. He sees the angel, he bows all the way to the ground. The angel tells him how the cow ate the cabbage. First of all, God is not happy with animal cruelty at all. He says, why have you struck your donkey three times? Secondly, I'm your enemy. I'm not your friend. I've come to oppose you because you're obviously moving contrary to my will. And you say, well, how serious is it? Well, the angel says, if your donkey hadn't turned aside three times, instead of you killing her, I'd have killed you. That's pretty serious business. You want to know how God is opposed to sinful behavior? He says, Balaam, I'd take you out, and I'd let her live. She's more righteous than you are, and she's an animal. Your donkey saved your life three times, and you beat her three times. Sin makes you stupid. It makes you live in light of what is not real. Verse 34, Balaam says to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me, Thou then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. Here's the principle. Real repentance recognizes that sin displeases God and turns away from it. Real repentance recognizes that sin displeases God and turns away from it. Turns away from sin. It's remarkable. What does Balaam say? If it is displeasing to you. What's with this if? Let's see. The angel has a sword in her hand. The angel said, I've come out to you as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. Is that not pretty clear? God had already told him weeks before, don't go. So Balaam says, I have sinned. This sounds a little phony, doesn't it, this confession of sin? There's a number of phony, you know, Judas said, I have sinned. Didn't mean he was sorry for his sin. It meant he was sorry for the consequences. Saul, I have sinned. I have sinned. Did he repent? Did he change his behavior? No, not really. So there's a lot of people in the Bible, you'll hear them say, I have sinned. It doesn't mean they're repentant of their sin and they're going to change their behavior. It simply means they're sorry for the consequences of their 
choices. David's repentance in Psalm 39 and Psalm 51, that's repentance. He was sorry that he broke God's heart. Balaam is sorry that he got caught. He still wants to go and curse Israel because he wants the cash. This guy is greedy. And he wants to get God to change his mind because he wants the cash more than he wants to do what God wants him to do. However, God is going to use this greedy, selfish fraudster to accomplish his eternal purposes. God put the exact words he wanted to say in the mouth of a donkey. And he's going to put the exact words he wants to say in the mouth of this dunce named Balaam, which we're going to discover next week, Lord willing. Balaam, disobedient to God, speaks the precise words that God wants to use. So God uses a very dirty vessel named Balaam to accomplish his perfect work. Both the donkey and Balaam say exactly what God ordained them to say. And God will be honored through both of them. You know, one of the lessons of this lesson is that God uses anything and everything to accomplish his purposes. You know, sometimes when we think that we're effective for the Lord, and I hear people say, well, in my ministry, or whatever it happens to be, I cringe because if God can speak through a donkey, he can use you. Sometimes we don't have as much insight as the donkey does because we don't see spiritual reality because we're committed to pursuing what we want to pursue, right? God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish in any way, shape, or form he can. And you say, well, if God uses a dirty vessel like Balaam, then why be clean? Well, we're going to find out in a couple of weeks what happens to the vessel when God gets done using it if he doesn't repent? Balaam gets killed. And he's got the cash in his pocket. And he loses his life. Really bad trade. Really a bad trade. Marty's going to come and lead us in prayer and praises, but it's a reminder for us not to get puffed up when God uses us to accomplish his plans. And we need to give God the glory for everything that he does. So let's summarize God's will is not hard to discover, but it is hard to obey if you're committed to choosing your own way. We really have to choose. What did Jesus say? No one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money, and it's pretty clear here that Balaam was chasing the cash. Number two, real practical. Never reconsider a decision you know is wrong regardless of the rewards. I'll give you another one. Never reconsider a decision you know is right, regardless of the rewards. If it's right, it's right. Do it. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Don't do it. And circumstances or consequences that follow that decision, that's God's problem. If you're obedient to the Word of God, then any consequences that come from your obedience, that's God's problem. He will take care of you if you obey what He wants you to do. Number three, God often allows what he does not approve. God hates sin, but he uses the sinful choices of people to accomplish his perfect plan. 
One of the things I think we need to remember is the sovereignty of God. It is terribly easy in this election season to think that our political brethren have a great deal of power and a great deal of control. If you were in the service this morning, you heard Pastor Roger say, most of our control is illusionary. None of us chose the day of our birth, none of us choose the day of our death, and we don't have a lot of control in between, right? God allows sinful people around the world, sinful leaders around the world, to make sinful choices, and he will use all of that to accomplish his purposes. That does not mean that that sinful choice is justified. It's sin, and they're going to be held accountable for that sin, but it will never thwart the purposes of God. No human behavior ever will thwart the purposes of God. God's going to accomplish his perfect plan through very, very, very broken, sinful people. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to find out exactly how God will speak through this disobedient prophet in front of the enemies of Israel to accomplish his purposes. Number four, sin blinds us to spiritual reality, but God opens our eyes so we can live in light of the truth. You know, Upton Sinclair, who wrote the book called The Jungle, once made the comment, it's really, really hard to get people to see something when their paycheck depends on their not seeing it. You ever thought about that? If they're getting compensated to not see it, then it's pretty hard for them to see it. Balaam wants the money so badly, he's willing to willfully... I don't want to see the facts. Don't destroy me. I've made up my mind. I want the money. Sin blinds us. When we're willing to be obedient, God opens our eyes. And, you know, God gave Balaam a chance to repent here, and he didn't take it. He didn't take it. When God gives you an opportunity to repent, take it. Lastly, real repentance recognizes that sin displeases God and turns away from it. This week, I promise you, the Lord will give you and I opportunities to repent. Because this week, I promise you that you will sin. So you have choice every time. Am I going to repent from that? Am I actually going to turn away from it? Or am I going to try and negotiate with God over it? Repentance always brings the blessing of the Lord. Okay? Thank you. Next week, look ahead, if you would. We'll be in Numbers 23, 4, and 5. Uh, I love you all. Now that you know. You've been listening to Manna at Valley Baptist Church. To hear this lesson and more, subscribe to our podcast, Manna at Valley Baptist Church, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Manna is taught by Brad Hannock and meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California. We believe in doing life together, and we encourage you to join us on Sunday morning. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for studying with us. And now that you know, do.